We have, in any context of our life, a limited budget. My family has a limited budget, and uh, I'm sure your family does too, Ed. And I'm also sure that when you do things like planning a family vacation, you have a certain amount of money set aside for the vacation. And what we've learned is successful families are going to find a way to live within their means and live within their budget, as modest as it may be. Similarly, uh, schools have that same uh, challenge, right? They're going to be given some money from the state, and they have to manage it. What we as members of a society need to do is to say, how do we want to manage our money? To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we are speaking with Luke Homan. He is the founder and the CEO of First Root Inc. Luke, could you please introduce yourself and let people know what you do and how you got there? Oh, thank you so much, Ed, and I'm very happy to be here. My name is, as you said, Luke Homan, and how I got here is a very interesting story. About a decade ago, I was working in the field of corporate portfolio management in very large enterprises. And what I learned in working with those very large enterprises is that the portfolio management and annual budgeting process was kind of awful. The leaders that I was working with would tell me that they were asked to collaborate during the year, but when the annual budgeting process came around, they were kind of pitted against each other over you know, who got what portion of the budget. And no one really liked that process, and they were looking for a more collaborative, more inclusionary way to determine how the companies that they were working for should spend money. I developed a process known as participatory budgeting, and and it's not just me who's developed it. There's variations in it. It was also started in, in the political sector. I was unaware that that process had started in the political sector, so I kind of invented a version of it that's appropriate for portfolio management in large companies, and it became quite successful. And we had companies like BMW or Mercedes-Benz or Cisco and eBay and Salesforce, lots of big-name companies who had these multi-million-dollar budgets that needed to be decided by a team of people work together. I built a software company to do that. And along the way, I started doing it with citizens in cities 
and in schools. And that was more philanthropic. And I wanted to see how could we improve the decision-making and how money is spent in cities and schools. It was a big hit. And I got really excited about my work in schools because I have four kids. And it was wonderful to see how giving them real money and supporting them in a process on how to manage and spend that money created amazing outcomes. The next step in the story is I sold my enterprise company and I started First Root, which is a company that is using participatory budgeting in schools to teach financial literacy and promote positive civic engagement. Yeah, so let's get into that. What exactly is First Root? And we'll add, what exactly is participatory budgeting? Yeah. Let me start by asking answering the question about what is participatory budgeting, and then we can talk about first route. So participatory budgeting is a five-phase process in which students determine how to spend money. The first phase is the planning phase. They get money. The, the amount of money that they get is usually $2,000 to $10,000. And the source of that money is usually the principal of the school who has discretionary funds, a parent-teacher association or a PTA, or in some cases, a corporate social responsibility partner. For example, we are producing a program in San Mateo, California at Hilldale High School, and Salesforce is a corporate social responsibility partner. and they are partially sponsoring that program. So there's a planning phase where the kids determine what the theme of the program is. It could be school safety, it could be educational materials, and securing the money. The next phase is an ideation phase. The students create proposals on how the money could be spent. Some of the proposals are silly, of course, because they're kids, but over time, the process of collaboration hones those proposals through refinement, which is the next phase. So let's say in the ideation phase, a student suggested to get some gym equipment. Well, no one can do anything with that because it's just an idea. In the refinement phase, they would enumerate specifically the equipment that they want to get. I want to get two footballs, four basketballs, two baseball bats, and it's going to cost this much money. Or I want to get uh, new equipment or new musical instruments for the band room. I want to get two guitars, and it's going to cost this much money. Those proposals are reviewed by the teacher to make sure they meet school policies, and the proposals that are feasible are put into a voting ballot. The students vote, which is the fourth phase. They, the actual entire student body logs into our app. They make a vote, and the winning proposals are then implemented. So the students actually see their choices implemented within the school. And that five-phase process is known as participatory budgeting. What First Root does is we make that process safe, secure, 
scalable and we give students and teachers a software platform that lets them do this easily. We support them with an integrated financial literacy and civics curriculum. So if they want to actually construct this into a classroom experience, they have all of the curriculum that they need to teach this within their classrooms. So you've got pilot programs already running on this? Yes, we have completed several pilot programs. I'll give you example results of a few of them because they're, they're rather exciting. In Madison, Wisconsin, we worked with Hegel Elementary School. The fifth graders of the school were given $1,500, and they went through this process, and they ended up getting a tree, a soccer nets for, the, uh, uh, foot, uh, for their uh, soccer field, and fidget toys. And I love the idea that the kids got fidget toys because I think it illustrates that it's what the kids want within school policies. And so the teachers, when they were presented with the idea from the kids that, hey, we'd like to get some fidget toys, the teachers said, okay, no, that's within school policies. If that's where you really want to spend your money, spend your money. Now let's think about this from a parent's perspective. As a parent, you might think, oh, the kids shouldn't get fidget toys. That's a waste of money. Well, it might be. It, it actually might be. But I like to joke, Ed, that if you went into my garage, I've got a few tools that are gathering dust. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I've got a few tools. But I never knew how useful a Sawzall was. And yeah. I never realized that I have a big old you know, circular saw. It's not as useful as it used to be when you get a Sawzall. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine you're a parent and you're wanting to prepare your child for a financially independent life. And that's what many of us want to do, right? We don't really envision our kids living with us forever. We envision our kids having their own families and leaving their own lives. If they're going to make a mistake, I would rather have my kids make a mistake on a small sum of money in the context of a classroom where a teacher can help them reason about the choice that they made. Because many times my kids, and I know other parents feel the same way, when my kids make a mistake with money, they don't want to talk about it with me. They're a little embarrassed, and I can understand that. They, they feel like they're being judged by me. But in the context of a classroom, a, and then in the context of making that choice with other students, they're not being judged. They're, they're looking at their choices and uh, evaluating them. Was this what we wanted? And maybe it was. Maybe the fidget toys were the best purchase they ever made. The point is, is that by putting the students in control, we create a very different set of opportunities for learning outcomes. Well, that's true. Plus, you have a social aspect there where you're students will have to actually engage one another to try to enhance their cause. Why do they want it? So you do have a lot of elements within this participatory budgeting that really has been there for quite a while, but the way you're making it more accessible to all students, that's unique. And let's talk about that for a moment. 
Isn't yes. that the foundation of a civil society? Yes. When you think about democracy, you have different forms of democracy. We have a republic. You could have a direct democracy. There's other forms. But in, in civil society, I need the skill and the ability to talk with my neighbors about how we should send the resources of uh, that the government has to better the society. Do we need, you know, in my own neighborhood, you know, what do I need? Do I need some of the roads fixed? Do I need better lighting? Do I need roads repainted? Uh, or, or maybe a different neighborhood has a greater set of needs than me. And those are the conversations that we want to have when we're working with the different schools. And we want to have those kids in that school have that conversation. Each school is different. And, and it's, a, it's kind of a mistake to assume that uh, people who are not associated with the school or the local community can make decisions for that community. We need, we need the tools to let the community start to make those decisions. Yes, I believe you're, you're on a big goal right there with that because I see what you're doing we can use in our social engagement with our representation more to really hone in on our own budgeting process within our own system because right now our our government might be a little messed up in some ways, but we do have a system to fix this. And understanding the process is where it happens. So getting the engagement early on with kids to understand that and understand that civic engagement, that's going to make a good nation because we will get along better. We'll understand each other better. And that's very important. Absolutely. And that's our vision. Imagine a fourth grader and a fifth grader who engage in participatory budgeting in their elementary school and they get gym equipment and they now move into middle school and they might get chemistry equipment. What I've noticed in my own uh, kids as they've aged is by the time they hit high school, they start to develop their own unique interests. One son of mine was in the debate club. One son was in the choir. My daughter is in the dance team. So you start to see them move into this dual role as we do as adults, where we have shared interests and shared resources and unique interests. So you can imagine that uh, a my daughter has two desires. She would like to have greater voice in how the dance team spends money and she would like to have greater voice in how the school spends money. So there's different communities that we live in and that we work in. And by creating this process and by supporting them in software, my daughter can have, when, when my daughter logs in, she actually sees multiple participatory budgeting cycles. And then she chooses the cycle that she's participating in. The software knows oh, this is the dance team, and these are the kind of proposals that the dance team has created, and here's the budget, as opposed to here are the proposals for the school, which would be a very different set of ideas 
because what the dance team needs and what the debate club team needs are very different, and that's very different from what the school needs. Thinking that way in high school prepares our children for when they become adults. And when we are members of a civil society, what my city needs is probably different than what the state needs, which is probably different than what the national um, the United States itself at a national level needs and operating at those different uh, levels and operating in those different contexts is what we need to do as citizens. Yes, that's true. Budgets right now are very tight and some of the things that we lack in is our schools. Our education is one of the most important things. How do we get more funds allocated into this participatory system? That's a great uh, question, and it's a great challenge. The, the reality is this. We have, in any context of our life, a limited budget. My family has a limited budget, and uh, I'm sure your family does too, Ed. And I'm also sure that when you do things like planning a family vacation, you have a certain amount of money set aside for the vacation. And what we've learned is successful families are going to find a way to live within their means and live within their budget, as modest as it may be. Similarly, uh, schools have that same uh, challenge, right? They're going to be given some money from the state, and they have to manage it. What we as members of a society need to do is to say, how do we want to manage our money? So from a phrasing standpoint, I'm, I have to admit, I think that the phrasing of defunding the police is not necessarily the right phrasing. I think a better framing of the concept is how do we want to invest the money that we've allocated for public safety into the programs that are best uh, equipped or most likely to create good public safety? I think those are the conversations we want to have about every budget at every level of society. The national government, right, the United States government at the national level, it's enormous in terms of its budget. And we know that there are big chunks of spending. And the question is, how do we want to allocate that spending? Do we want to allocate more money to schools? You could certainly uh, advocate for that. I do. <laughs> I advocate for more money for schools, but I don't want it. Uh, and sometimes the money comes from raising taxes. Sometimes it comes from allocating our money differently. And those are the conversations that we want to have. Yes, that's what's going to grow our nation in the right direction, that's for sure. So starting this early is really the key here. At what point or what age, what grade level do you think this system should be installed? My experience is that Financial literacy concepts actually start around the age of two. If you look at the, the, the oh, deep wow. psychology, and I know you're not thinking like, you're thinking like, wow, how could that be? But uh, the age of two is chosen because usually that's when what happens is a purchase request is made. You take your kids to the store and 
especially the grocery store or the, the farmer's market, and they say, I'd like you to get apples, mom, or they point to the cereal, you know, get the cereal. That's mm-hmm. actually the formation of the core transaction of I want something and I can acquire it through something that mom or dad hands to the to the to the cashier. I, I want an apple and mom handed these green pieces of paper. That starts around age two. By the age of four or five, most children have experienced what's called an assisted purchase where the parent has actually brought the child into that purchasing process. Now, the parent isn't teaching, um, let me rephrase, the parent doesn't think they're teaching financial literacy, right? They're just a busy parent trying to keep the kid occupied. But they're actually teaching the kids a little bit more about financial literacy by showing them how transactions work. By the age of six or seven, which is about kindergarten or first grade, many children have a savings account. And they may not know exactly how banking works, but they know there's this thing called a bank. And they know that mom and dad have jobs and jobs create income. When you look at the age of where participatory budgeting can be engaged, it's as early as seven or eight years old, about second or third grade, you can start to have these kids engaged in the process. Now, it's simpler, right? As as we age, our thinking becomes more sophisticated, more complex. We're going to talk about more uh, sophisticated financial instruments, uh, and you can rope in different concepts. Like you wouldn't talk to fourth and fifth graders about credit cards too much because they're still learning the basics of savings and checkings. But as they age and they keep going through this process, you can introduce increasingly important concepts. Now, that also goes for civics, right? Let's look at voting. The, what a what an elementary school kid can understand is majority vote. We all get a vote, and the item that gets the most votes wins. That's great. But that's not exactly how um, all the voting systems work. For example, in New York City, they've implemented a form of voting called ranked choice voting where you don't pick one candidate, you rank order your top five candidates in order of one, two, three, four, five. And the idea behind ranked choice voting is it can create a more accurate uh, representation of voter sentiment. So I'll give you a really concrete example, Ed. Let's say that you rank candidate A as number one and candidate B is number two and candidate C is number three. And I reverse that order. I rank candidate C as number one and candidate B is number two and candidate A is number uh, three. Uh, there's no majority except for B, but what turned out is B is also the second choice vote for both of us. So you could argue that even though it wasn't our first choice, it was the better choice because it was the one that we could more likely agree on. And so you're not going to introduce the sophistication of ranked choice voting to an elementary school, but you could certainly bring that into a high school and talk about fairness and voting algorithms and voting systems. 
And that's part of our goal is by having students repeatedly experience participatory budgeting as they progress through their educational uh, career or the educational system, we get the chance to bring in more sophisticated financial literacy and civics concepts. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. I've, I've actually looked into that a little bit. And, you know, I, I really think we need to have our nation look into that a little more also. Have you seen any pushback from anyone on using the PB system in schools? Sometimes there is pushback. Uh, parents sometimes get a little concerned uh, that the kids will, in their opinion, waste the money. And to alleviate that concern, we review the results. We actually have no data that the kids waste the money. And, and what I mean by wasting the money is parents sometimes say, well, I don't want my kids to throw a party. Well, first, uh, my opinion would be if the kids actually voted to have a party, they're probably telling the school and the parents that there's not enough opportunities for being social with each other. But that said, we don't have any evidence in the actual results of participatory budgeting programs that the kids waste the money. Uh, the second pushback sometimes comes in the form of teachers already have too many things to do. We can't add another thing for them to do. That's a very legitimate concern, and it's something that we have to be careful about. Fortunately, what we're seeing is many school systems are adopting financial literacy uh, education requirements, such as the education requirements for personal finance in Wisconsin and Texas. And many school systems are improving civics and integrating participatory budgeting into their civics curriculum. An example of that would be the Chicago Public Schools and the New York State and New York City uh, school districts uh, across the state in New York and then in the New York City, they've actually created civics curriculum that integrates participatory budgeting into the curriculum. So the concern of adding one more thing to the teacher is best alleviated by asking the school district to consider adopting curriculum that helps prepare our kids and adjusting the civics or home economics or economics curriculum to include uh, participatory budgeting as part of the process in the curriculum. So those are the two biggest pushbacks that we see. I know you might be wondering about the actual funds given to the students. We don't actually see a lot of pushback on allocating a few thousand dollars to kids, uh, partly because uh, principals and PTAs already have thousands of dollars of discretionary funds. Individual teachers don't have discretionary funds, but principals and PTAs do. So we usually find that we can acquire a few thousand dollars from those sources. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And, you know, you're on to something big here, and it can change lives in big ways. Every part of our life is somehow connected with technology now, and we see more and more this interconnectivity going on. 
even our refrigerators, our toasters, you know, they're starting to talk to us. What kind of safety measures have you implemented into your app? There are, Ed, I, I feel like, I feel like a lot of listeners should know that you and I didn't plan all these questions, but I think your questions are brilliant because you're asking all of the concerns that we have heard. So I appreciate you for the homework that you've done in preparing for our interview it's and the podcast. It, these are really critical. So let's look at a couple of dimensions of safety and compliance. Uh, the first is, let's just talk about safety with the kids. Our app allows kids to upload photos of their ideas. We route those algorithms to image recognition and image processing services that make sure that any violent images or any pornographic images or any other deemed inappropriate images are automatically quarantined from display from other students. In addition, uh, students can flag an image as being inappropriate if it's flagged, it's moved into a quarantine status, and a teacher can review it. So there's there's these safeguards that are built in. Yeah. Uh, we also have several laws in the United States that are designed to protect students and protect citizens. Uh, the primary laws for students are FERPA, which controls access to educational records, and COPA, which stands for the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And COPA uh, and FERPA are baked into the platform so that we're honoring the necessary regulations and requirements. In addition, uh, I do not believe that our children should be sold to advertisers as many social media companies do. So there's no advertising associated with our platform. Uh, the data is maintained in encrypted servers. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of baked-in security controls designed to make sure that the experience can be as safe as possible for our students. Yeah, that's very important. And a lot of people, they, especially us older people that, you know, we grew up with the internet before the internet, you know, so we get weary of these things. Um, so well, actually, let's build on that a little bit more. Um, people who are newer to the internet, like we didn't grow up with the internet. Uh, you're right. We're still learning about this. Uh, our kids can't afford to wait. We have to teach them. So the first root educational curriculum, I think our third lesson is on digital identity and privacy management. And we have a lesson on things on the financial literacy side. We have a lesson that talks about using, for example, multi-factor authentication. Yes. Our kids, our kids access their bank accounts differently. When I was a kid, I went to the bank. My kids log into their bank app on their uh, phones right. or their websites. And so our curriculum teaches the kids, okay, if you're going to log into the bank account, you do it in a private browser. You never do it on a public computer. You use multi-factor authentication. You use 
long and strong passwords. Uh, these are the kinds of things that you say about yourself when you're online. You never share your passwords. So we actually have a lesson designed to promote uh, I proper identity management in both civics and financial systems. Yeah, I think that's very important because I even struggle with that. And I've been around computers. I, you know, kind of think about those things, but still there's those little things that trick you and sneak up. And if, if you're aware of those before you get online, it sure can help. So, yeah, and there's other forms of attack, like phishing, yes. fake emails, fake friend requests, uh, uh, online predators. But going back to our safety protocols, you cannot enter the participatory budgeting cycle of a school unless you've been invited. And the teachers and the school administrators have complete control over who is in the program. And for example, let's say for whatever reason, a student acted inappropriately, they could even be suspended or removed from the PB program by the teacher. We've, we have never had that happen, but the capability that it could happen exists. So we've built in safety protocols to handle it. Well, that's good that you're thinking ahead on these things because a lot of people, they rush into things and they don't give proper thought. It's important. How do people and your students access this? Is it just on a phone or can you do it on the web browser? Is it mobile and web-based? It is mobile and web-based. That is because our company has a strong commitment to inclusion. So it will run on Android, iPhone, it'll run on a tablet, it'll run on a Chromebook, it'll run on web browsers, on Macs and PCs. It's also localized into multiple languages. So we know that uh, many students in the United States speak English as a second language. So we want those students to be able to have conversations uh, when they're at home. They may need to show a parent what's going on. So we localize the user interface so that uh, if you're at home and your browser is set to say Spanish, you would see the user interface in Spanish. Oh, that's interesting. So that's basically what I've outlined. I do have one more uh, thing because you did mention about teachers, you know, we stack a lot on our teachers and they get paid very little. I think in my opinion, I want people to know, I think we should pay teachers just as much as we pay our politicians because both of those factors in our life is very important but we're lacking on our education and our education comes through teachers. We need to pay them properly. Do you have anything else, Luke, that you would like to add to the conversation? Well, I would like to add that the change that we need in our society is coming through every one of us who are involved. You're involved. I'm involved. You're, posting and sharing these kinds of concepts. Uh, 
So what I would like to let every listener know, because chances are the listeners of this podcast aren't, you know, a middle school person. They're, they're adults, and they care about right. the same things that we care about. I would invite them to come visit firstroot.co, look at our resources, share this, bring this into a school, and help spread the word that there is this marvelous process known as participatory budgeting that can truly help promote civic engagement and financial literacy in a very positive way that produces tangible improvements into the school. And we would love to see parents involved and uh, get involved into their school and get involved in their community. Uh, let's build on that just a little bit, Luke. How do parents introduce this subject to their school boards? Well, there's a couple of different approaches. One approach is, uh, and the one I actually favor, believe it or not, is don't start with the school board. Start with a teacher in your school that you have a relationship with. And we have a set of one-page overviews that describe our program. Go to our website. Go to the resources section. Share the email of how to introduce this into your school. Just have a small conversation and see if the teacher is interested. The teacher that you're talking to may not be the right target, but if there's any interest at all, they'll know who to talk to. So when I brought this into one school, I went to a teacher that my kids were with and I said, what do you think about this? And they said, oh, this is a great idea. The person you need to talk to is so-and-so. So then I went and talked to so-and-so. They loved it. And they said, okay, I'll endorse this, but we do have to get the principal's approval. Let me take it to the principal. So that teacher took it to the principal. The principal said, this is great. We got a little bit of money from the PTA, and we were off and running. So I think one of the things that people do is they try to make the starting condition too big. So if I were to go to the school district and I, and I start there and I say, hey, every school in our school district needs to do this, that may be true, but now I've got the school district involved and they've got to worry about a whole bunch of other stuff and factor it in. I think that you can get there, but I think the way to start is just one school at a time is all we need to do to create the change that we need because it's consistent and it produces a result. It's a lot easier to get the school district excited about this if you can show them how one or two schools were successful. Yeah, that's good advice. I want to say thank you, Luke. I appreciate what you're doing out there, and I want to say thank you to the team behind what you're doing. It's fabulous and very exciting. Thank you for being on the Dead America podcast. Thank you, Ed, so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.